This message was presented at the Amen Missions 2017 Bible Conference, Shaken But Not Forsaken, in Cape Town, South Africa. For more resources like this, visit us at www.amen-missions.co.za. Amen. Advent message to every nation. Um, and we're going to go to the book of Titus. Um, our scripture reading will be taken from Titus 1, verses 10 and 11. Titus 1, 10 and 11. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, those whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. Teaching things which they should not for filthy lucre's sake. Our last message of the conference is entitled, The Titus Challenge, Setting Things in Order the Titus Challenge. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to study your word. Once again, I ask that you just make me a nail on the wall, otherwise useless, bendable, Lord, even breakable. But Father God, I ask that that nail be hammered into the wall with your Holy Spirit and that a portrait of Jesus Christ be hung on that nail. Let the nail not be seen now, Lord, Instead, Father God, let us hear a word from the throne room of grace. This is our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. Paul was doing great work um, in where new churches had been established. Paul was wise enough to understand that his ministry could not go forward if he tried to be everywhere at once. Of course, they didn't even have the internet back then. So communication was difficult, and they had to keep in touch. And one of the ways that God led Paul to keep in touch was Paul wrote letters. As I've talked to young people here in South Africa, I am strong in encouraging young people to finish school and get advanced degrees. The reason Paul writes so much of the New Testament, we are told, is because Paul is a sharpened tool, meaning he was highly educated. He could handle the language, Greek, in a very, very strong way. Greek at the time was what we call the lingua franca. It was the language everyone commonly spoke. Uh, and so it was a language that was also very descriptive. So Paul wrote in, in the Greek, and he wrote to people he needed to reach. And one of those individuals is Titus. We, we're very familiar often with the two uh, epistles he writes to Timothy, but Titus is also someone he had to reach. Paul in these letters often reveals a lot. He says in Titus 1 and verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the, and, and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began but hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God, our Savior. Paul starts his letter to Titus, establishing a few key things. He establishes that Paul is God's servant and he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. That was often questioned in Paul's day. Paul also says that in the hope of eternal life, that God promised. Paul says that eternal life has been promised to us, and then he says that God 
cannot lie. Huh. God is so powerful that if God says that this floor is water, rather than it be a lie, the floor would turn to water. God cannot lie. Then he says, in hope of eternal life, which God cannot lie, promised before the world began. He says that this promise came before the world came into existence. And he says that in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior. Paul says, listen, I have been committed, I have been called to preach. Titus, that's who I am. But to you, Titus, he says, like, you are now like my son. After the common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. For this cause I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. Paul says, Titus, you're like my son. I brought you in among me and, and, and we're close. You're like my son. I'm, I'm hoping that grace, mercy, and peace falls on you. But I want to tell you why I left you where I left you. I left you there in Crete because you are there to set in order the things that are wanting. Your job is to, uh, is to set up leaders in Crete. Just like I appointed you, you are to appoint them. One of the quintessential lessons of this little letter, Titus, is that God leads you into ministry not so that you can simply be a minister. God leads you into ministry so that you can call others into ministry behind you. The calling on many of your lives is a calling to now disciple others because guess what? Somebody's got to take up the slack when you're gone. In business, we call it succession planning. And too many times in our churches, there is no succession planning. There's no one to come up behind those that are there now. In fact, oftentimes, folk are fighting and wrestling over the positions in church. If the ministry is to go on, if the gospel is to go forward, if the church is to continue, one of the first things you ought to get out of the book of Titus is that, in fact, you're not just called to preach a gospel, you're called to prepare folk to preach the gospel when you can't. And you're called to do this in some difficult places. You see, Titus was in a tough place. He was with the Cretans. In fact, to this day, if you call someone a Cretan, it's an insult. It's usually, though, they don't know it's an insult if they qualify for the term. Um, the Cretans had a horrible reputation. In Titus 1 and verse 12 and 13, Paul says something that I, as a black man in America, would classify as a racist statement. He stereotypes and paints a broad picture of all Cretans. Paul says one of themselves, who is uh, Epimenides, a 6th century poet, is the one who wrote this, and a philosopher from Crete, describes his own people this way. Even a prophet of their own said, the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and slow bellies. Meaning these are lazy, stubborn, and immoral folk. They can't be trusted, and, and they are rock-hard, stubborn-headed folk. 
And then Paul says, does something in the Bible that I think verse 13 bothers me more than verse 12, honestly. Because Paul says this witness is true. Now, the Cretans were revolutionaries. The reason they were so hard to deal with, part of the reason they were so hard to deal with is, they did not like the Greeks trying to rule them during the Hellenistic period. And they did not like the Romans coming in behind them trying to rule them out either. So they were always fighting against whoever was trying to rule them. And the thing about the Cretans were they lived on the island at, at the top of one of its mountains where Jupiter himself was said to be born. So they had this idea that they had the right God. They had the right situation. They, they could fight whoever they wanted to fight because they lived in the birthplace of Zeus. Which is also Jupiter. But the church in Crete had to deal with these folk. In fact, I, as I was reading this, it was difficult because I'm saying, wow, Paul, this is a tough statement Paul makes. Peter says that Paul, when you read him, is difficult to understand. Peter's right. But then I had to stop and say, Paul is writing this to a man he's charging to not only win Cretans over to Christ, but to serve the Cretans. Here, ooh, don't miss this, don't miss this. Paul is saying, this is what I think of them. This is what their own spoke of them. And, and I kind of see where he's coming from, he says in verse 13. But Paul says, the fact that you think folk are not uh, like you are, maybe they're more difficult than you are, Paul is saying, that is no excuse not to minister to them, not to serve them, and not to live among them. So they had the one challenge, they had to deal with the Cretans, a pagan population, bent on revolution, always wanting to fight. When Paul was trying to teach the church, you're going to have to submit to the powers that be and change it by showing them who Christ is. But he had another problem. Titus did in dealing with these, the, the, people, the church in Crete. You see, there was a Judaizing influence that was affecting the church. And it went back to when the, probably went back to when the Jews at Pentecost from Crete were converted in Acts 2 and verse 11. And so what happens is you've got one faction of the people in the church who are being pulled back to paganism all the time. Always struggling with wanting to, uh, to, to deal with the political uh, uh, injustice of the time. And there's nothing wrong with addressing political injustice. But you have them sometimes being pulled away from the gospel because of those two things. But then on the other hand, he's got folk who are Judaizing the church. Meaning they're saying you still got to keep feasts. When there's absolutely no reason for the Christian to keep the Jewish feasts. They were nailed to the cross when Jesus went to the cross. And they were telling them, you still got to circumcise your children. If you're not circumcised, you can't come to church. So they were trying to Judaize the church. So Paul knew that Titus was in a conundrum. He was in a difficult situation. It wasn't simply racial or ethnic differences. There were philosophic, theologic differences that were breaking the church apart. Titus had to deal with that. On the one hand, secularism today is pulling folk too far in one direction in our churches. Folk are thinking that they've got it all right 
if they understand the world. In fact, I've heard Adventist folk tell me that they believe in evolution. Fully believe. I'm a, one, one, one woman told, one scientist, she told me, I'm a scientist, I, I have to believe in evolution. That doesn't even make logical sense. Because if you're, it don't make sense, because if you're an evolutionist, why would you keep the seven-day Sabbath? If it took millions of years, why keep a day? The seven-day Sabbath disappears by default if you believe in true evolution. So you're a seven-day Adventist keeping the seventh day of something that never happened. <laughs> the Bible says, thinking themselves wise, they became as fools. Spirit of Prophecy tells us that if the Sabbath had continued to be kept by all men, evolution could never have risen up in the first place. So you have that problem, but then you have the problem of legalism. And folk coming to church and not being a fear to other folk. They, they're quick to judge other people, quick to tell other people what to do and, and how to live. And oftentimes we're giving people our burden to carry. Spirit of Prophecy speaks heavily against that. So what's going on in our churches? Well, I just got back from London, and when I put this together, I, I, spoke, I gave this first, at, like just sitting at a table with union leaders um, and conference leaders in, in, in London or outside of London, and I looked up a, 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 an article for them. And this article was written by a Catholic, Damien uh, Thompson, um, and the statistics come from the British Social Attitude Survey and the British Election Study and Census. Damien Thompson, this Catholic, says that by 2067, Christianity will cease to exist on the British Isles. Fifty years from now, he says, there will be no more Christians in all of Great Britain. In fact, he says, uh, Anglicanism will disappear by 2033. There will be no more Anglicans in England by 2033, he says. He says the number of Christians born in Britannia fell by 5.3 million between 2001 and 2011. That's a drop on average of 10,000 a week. Remember that their churches often grow by birth and not by conversion. Catholics in the church decreased, and in, 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 in Britannia decreased from 10% to 8% from 1981 to 2014. But he says in the article, you've got to read between the lines because it is the immigration of people from Eastern Europe and from Asia, like the Philippines, that are actually filling the pews of the Catholic Church in, in, in Great Britain. So in fact, British-born Catholics are, are falling even faster. So then I started to try and look at what Adventism looks like on the British Isles. On, a, in a, on the British Isles, where there are over 70 million people, the figure I got from them was that there are only about 30,000 Adventists. 30. So if the Anglican church could disappear by 2033, our church could disappear on the British Isles even faster. Now, that was tough to get. So then I looked at the United States, and this gentleman also deals with the United States. He says in a Pew Research study published, a big study about America's changing religious landscape, its subtitle was Christians Decline Sharply a Share of Population unaffiliated and other faiths continue to grow. Only 57% of Americans born between 1981 and 1996 now identify as Christian. 36% of young millennials between the ages of 18 and 24 are the so-called nuns. They have no religious affiliation at all. 
The challenge given you here in South Africa is that I would imagine that in many sectors of this society, you're losing folk the exact same way. That a church is being challenged the same way here as it is in the United States and in Great Britain. And that if you're not careful, the church could slowly dwindle into non-existence. And some of you are probably old enough to remember when some of the churches were much stronger than they are now, made up of people born here. Paul says to Titus in 1 verse 5, for this reason, what reason? A church that is being ripped apart, a generation that is giving up on God, those who are becoming Cretans, not born Cretans, choosing the thug life, wanting to be gangsters, those who idolize the people of the world, and at the same time, having a whole nother group of people trying to give the church uh, and, and, the, and the people of the church laws and rules to follow that are not biblical. He says, for this reason, I left you behind in Crete so that you would set right what remains, and I like this word here, unfinished. I want you to set right what is unfinished. And the Greek word there is epidiorthio. It means to finish something that was started but has never been completed. I came all the way from California to tell you a whole lot of stuff, but the last thing I want to tell you today is this one. God has set you in this place to finish what needs finishing in South Africa. God has put you together. The diverse group of people that I've seen on both at both locations I've been while in South Africa. God has put you together because it is going to take a group of people who do not value race above grace. It's going to take a group of people who are willing to go where other folks say is off limits. It is going to take folk who are willing to befriend those who this society say are not uh, a friendable, if there's such a word. It is your job to reach into the gap that has been created and finish the work that was started here. So in his article, he tells you why he thinks Christianity is dying. He gives three reasons. Number one, secularism. We touched that. We'll come back around to why that is. But the second one was interesting. It's social mobility and the loss of plausibility structures. He says that as young people become more upwardly mobile in the socioeconomic realm, as, as, as affluence begins to creep in among folk who once had no affluence, as that begins to happen, what, what Paul says happens is all of a sudden you move and you move out of your comfort zone, out of your safe space, geographically and theologically. So you move to go get the better job in another city in South Africa or maybe another part of the world. You move away from grandma and from mom and from uncle and from grandpa, from your church family. And when you're left in a space where you don't have the support you used to have, you begin to believe like the people around you. Watch this. Especially when you go off to college. 
I took a course at the University of Alabama in Huntsville while I was at Oakwood. I took a comparative anatomy class, and I'll never forget that man teach evolution. The guy had a cadence like a preacher. He was teaching evolution as if he was preaching the gospel, and it was crazy because I'd come from Oakwood where there were so many great preachers, and I was like, this professor is preaching. Later on, I read a book by Roger Murnau called A Trip into the Supernatural. I don't know if you've read the book. It's a powerful book. But in the book, he, he comes out of demon worship and becomes an Adventist. And he says that when he was in demon worship, the demon priest told him that anytime someone teaches evolution, that Satan gives that individual extra uh, demonic power. Loss of plausibility structures. And third, he says, the part of the reason the church is falling apart is a lack of leadership. Remember, there's a Catholic non-Adventist dude speaking. He says that the problem with the church now is that the church is led by middle managers who often lead out of fear and at the same time, arrogance. That's a horrible combination. When you got a proud chicken, that's a problem and a half. Proud chicken going to lead you to a wolf. That's what a proud chicken going to do. <laughs> so how do you set things in order? Number one, each one of us, and it's funny because we we're just having this conversation in between sessions, ins you must insulate the church from the effects of an intoxicated and addicted to society. The word sobriety is used at least five times in the short letter of Titus. Temperance is used at least twice. And there are more, multiple warnings against filthy lucre. Paul says you must not succumb to the intoxicating effects of the world. South Africa, one thing I did read about South Africa, because I do a little research before I travel, people here like to drink. Yeah, people here like to drink. I, I see some of y'all, y'all like, nah, yeah, nah, yeah, nah, yeah. And guess what I've learned in all my years in the Adventist church is that stuff sometimes spills into our own churches. But it's not just chemical dependence, drugs and alcohols that we have to worry about. Uh, marijuana is a big problem. I hope our churches are warning our children against using marijuana. But it's also the intoxicating effect of the entertainment world. It's also the intoxicating effect of social media. It's also the intoxicating effect of being influenced by folk who, who do not know God, setting up as idols, Kardashians on the other side of the world, who have no talent, I don't even know how they're famous, can't sing, dance, throw a football, can't do nothing, and you follow them. In fact, Titus, when he describes leadership, he says, for a bishop, must be blameless as the steward of God, not, look at this word, self-willed, not soon angry. You can't be somebody who's quick to anger, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre. Look at what you're supposed to love if you're going to be a leader. Hospitality. First thing Paul mentions is you need to love serving other folk if you're going to be a leader. A lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate. That's the definition of a leader. The word self-willed in Greek, is means you do not want someone who is self-pleasing or arrogant. 
We'll come back around to arrogant. But the second thing he says, of the three things I'm going to give you, the second thing he says is that we are to rebuke false doctrine and speak sound, uncorrupt doctrine. There's another conversation we were having. The challenge of what happens when false doctrine begins to come into the church. It is a difficult thing. In some churches, you can be overwhelmed by the weight of the false doctrine that's coming into your church. I challenge those that are here that you put together a group that defends the truth. Makes it, or gives resources to folk. When people are coming along, tell them, look, you got to keep the festival still. You got to do this. You got to do that. You know, all of these. Th Make sure somebody's got the resources in place for folk to go to so that they get the truth. So that they're not confused on these issues. I'm going to show you that these are demonic movements in a second. Timothy 1, Titus 1, 9 says, Holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convince the gainsayers. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision. You know what that means? Those that were been in the church a long time. Whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. And the filthy lucre now is often self-aggrandizement. It is self-righteousness why people do this. They want to give you rules to follow so they feel better about themselves. Don't you fall into the trap of their foolishness. The third thing. The third thing, you, and if you're going to set it in order, you got to stay humble. In fact, Paul says to Titus, remember where you come from. Remember where you come. You know, every time, any time I think I, I want to get beyond where I'm at, I just remember my roots. I remember that little house I grew up in. I remember shoveling the snow. I remember cleaning toilets to make money. I remember shoveling dung off the bird dung off the roof of the off of the roof of the building at Oakwood to help make up my tuition. I, I go back and I remember my roots. I remember where I came from. Because I don't want to get beyond who I am. Paul says, remember where you come from. That's important from a socioeconomic position, but it's even more important from a spiritual context. So Paul says, listen, don't, yeah, those Cretans might be who they are. They might be all those different things, but guess what we were? He compares, see, Paul always brings it around. He sounds rough on the Cretans, but look how he talks to him and Titus. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish. We were disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. He says, listen, we were racist one time. We didn't like everybody. We lived in malice. We serve diverse lusts. He says, but after the kindness and love of God, our Savior toward man appeared. He says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the watching of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, Paul says that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul says, guess what? 
our birthright did not make us righteous. You weren't born righteous. I don't care what group you were born into, however they classify you, you are genetically flawed because you are a child of your parents, Adam and Eve. And that flaw, even though some of us can dress it up better, some of us can dress it down, uh, dress it down and don't look so good, that flaw is the only flaw that actually matters. So we look at the phenotype. We look at the outward features, the thickness of my lips or the, or the coarseness of my hair, the color of my skin. We look at all that stuff. God says, listen, on a genetic level, one that you can't see, you are all flawed. All in need of the blood of Jesus Christ. When you go forward in South Africa to do the work that needs to be done, always remember that you are flawed, reaching the flawed. You remember that your ministry will be powerful. When you remember that, yeah, these people don't live like I live. Maybe they live different. But guess what? Jesus died for them too. When it comes to the church being ripped apart, I was getting really, I was really getting discouraged at times. I mean, I've, I've been places and seen things and you start wondering, is this really God's church? Is, is some folk in America started teaching that the church is Babylon and all of this kind of stuff and we ought to leave the Adventist church? And I started to get worried and I'm telling you, some of that stuff is going, if it's not already here, it's coming. Look at what the spirit of, and here's the funny thing, they try and use the spirit of prophecy to justify their foolishness. Here's what the spirit of prophecy says. She says, God has a church upon the earth who are his chosen people. And look at what identifies us, who keep his commandments. It is doctrine that distinguishes us. He is leading, not stray offshoots, not one here and one there, but a what? A people. You know what I feel when, I, when I'm around you all? That you are my people. My parents are Jamaican. I go to Jamaica, not every Jamaican is my people. I was born and raised in America. Every black American is not my people. I have a family of extended family of cousins and, and, and brothers and half brothers and sisters and all kind of folk. And guess what? Some of them are not my people. You know who is my people? Those who have been grafted in, who have been brought into the vine that is Jesus Christ. Those who have been connected to him. Those who have been washed by the blood of the lamb. I don't care what you look like. I don't care what language you speak. If you are belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I are people. You are my peeps. She says, there is no need to doubt to be fearful that the work will not succeed. She says, God is at the head of the work and he will set everything in order. If matters need adjusting at the head of the work, God will deal with it. See, some of us are like, man, we got to do something to the people at the top. Let me tell you something. The worst place they can fall is on the hands of the living God. Let God deal with them. One thing that no one can stop is that the church at its core all of the traction of the church, all of the traction happens at the local church. Y'all missing this thing. The real power is with the people. The real power is on the ground. The real power is what happens from Sabbath to Sabbath at our local churches. That's where the real power is. 
And as long as we in our local churches and in conferences like this, as long as we lift up the name of Jesus, lift up the standard, lift it all up, put the cross of Jesus high so every man, woman, boy and girl in this vicinity can see it, the work of God will continue. The devil wants you to focus on what is being messed up here and there and everywhere, and you start focusing on that and stop focusing on Jesus. She said, if matters need adjusting at the head of the work, she says, God will attend to that and work to right every wrong. Let us have faith that God is going to carry the noble ship which bears the people of God safely to port. This church, this Seventh-day Adventist church, is that noble ship Zion. And I know we're in some shark-infested water. And I know the waves beat on the ship. And I know the winds blow. And I know the ship goes sideways sometimes. And I saw sometimes you get tossed around in bumps and bruises from getting bumped around in the ship. And I know there's some crazy folk on the ship with you. Don't get me wrong. I know. But guess what? It makes no sense to jump out of the ship. I'll deal with the ship rather than jump out and get eaten by the sharks. This noble ship will reach its port. She says there's not a whole bunch of splinter groups here and there. God has a people. This is God's people, his remnant people. Defined by the truths in the scripture that define us. I'm closing one of my favorite stories. Is the story of John Newton. I hope I'm, I'm remembering his first name right. Who wrote the, the hymn, Amazing Grace. It's one of the most powerful stories in the last couple centuries. John Newton was the captain of a, sh of a slave ship. When I was in London the last time, my cousin there took me, and, and the pastor, they took me to see one, uh, one of the ships. Beautiful ship. Interestingly enough, there's a witch on the front of the ship. Because although the British were Christian, they still had their superstitions as well. There's a statue of a witch there. And they showed me the steps in London where the slaves would first reach Great Britain. African slaves would come up those steps to a world that they did not understand, to languages they could not understand, and they were confused and perplexed. The author of Amazing Grace was the captain of one of those slave ships. And he came to know Jesus Christ and ultimately became a pastor. And when he began to think about all of the terrible things he did, taking the chained souls of men across the Atlantic Ocean. He was humbled. He was distraught. When he was on the ship, he used to hear those African slaves hum. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One day the Lord God gave him words. And the former slave ship captain 
went back to the tune of the African slaves. And as God poured out his spirit on him, he began to write, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And he took the tune of African slaves and put the words to it. And the most popular hymn in the world is the hymn of a man who came to Christ despite all the foolishness he did. If the story stopped there, it'd be powerful, but he becomes the pastor of one of my favorite people in all of history, a man named William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce, almost single-handedly, and it took him years to do it, led the British Parliament to end the African slave trade. Years before America and Abraham Lincoln stopped uh, slavery in the United States, he stopped the British Empire from, the, from doing the slave trade. Why? Because not only was Pastor Newton a Christian, Wilbur, William Wilberforce was a Christian. And they, when they came into their Christianity, began to understand that God had an incredible purpose for the two of them. Let me tell you something. If God could use that former slave ship captain to write the song that reminds us of the power of God's grace, and if God could use William Wilberforce, who actually struggled with addiction himself at time, for a time, and lead him to lead the most powerful empire at the time, to relinquish one of its most profitable institutions. What is there in South Africa that God can't lead you to do? I leave that challenge with you, that you set these things in order, that you complete that which is to be finished, because Jesus is coming soon. He's coming for a church without spot or blemish. My appeal, brief appeal, is this one. You want to be a part of finishing the work in South Africa. You want to be a part of spreading the three angels' messages here where God has been working for centuries. You want to finish what God started 400 years ago on the southern end of this continent. If that's what you want, I want you to stand with me and I'm gonna pray for God to finish this work and for each of you to be instrumental in the finishing of that work. As every head is bowed and every eye is closed. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to look at your scripture, to look at your word. I thank you, Father God, because you gave Titus such an incredible challenge. But Father God, that challenge is left for Titus so that we could read it and so that we could understand the challenge that you have for us now to set in order those things that are unfinished. Father God, I ask for Holy Ghost power to fall on this group. I ask, Father God, for you to pour out your Holy Ghost upon them in double and triple portion 
Ask Father God that angels that excel in wisdom and strength would be given charge over those under the sound of my voice right now. And Father God, that every Bible study that is done would be done so that Jesus is lifted up and the Holy Ghost would fall every time one is done. Every conference, every sermon, every seminar that is led by someone in here, every song that is sung by a singing group or a chorister. And Father God, your Holy Ghost would be at the center of it, that the Spirit of the living God would be there. And that Jesus would be lifted up. For he said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw men unto me. Father God, draw. Let us do the lifting so that you can do the drawing. Lord, be with us as we go into a new week as well. Be with everyone I love in Florida, Lord, that is dealing with the hurricane right now. And Father God, I ask for traveling mercies back home. Bless, amen. Bless this leadership. Bless those that are about to join and help uh, lift the weight of the ministry. Father God, they would go forth conquering and to conquer. So our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Let the church say amen, amen. and amen. This message was presented at the Amen Missions 2017 Bible Conference, Shaken But Not Forsaken, in Cape Town, South Africa. Amen Missions, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, is a youth-led ministry seeking to inspire young people to be Bible-based, mission-focused, and Christ-centered Christians. Our aim is to assist in taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the world in this generation, starting in South Africa. For more resources like this, or to find out how to support this work, visit us at www.amen-missions.co.za. Amen. Advent message to every nation. This recording was produced by the Preparation Ministry.